So I feel like I'm always going to be adding side notes to anything I post from Generation Z. And I know some of the content that I posted of his were, you know, a couple years back. But this one is probably just a few months old. And it's, the discussion is about AI, but it's weird that somebody who isn't spiritual or religious or whatever can still speak on topics like consciousness and sentient beings and artificial intelligence without ever factoring that into the equation. So I haven't had a chance to listen to the full episode yet, and maybe I'll post uh, another side note or another commentary or whatever. Um, But let's just look at it like this. Just as demons are able to manipulate a Ouija board um, and these unclean spirits, these demonic entities can inhabit statues and inanimate objects as well as animals and humans, as we see when Jesus casted out a legion of demons out of a man and they went into a herd of swine and drowned themselves. So we know that demonic entities can inhabit people, animals, and and inanimate objects. And if they're able to assist music, uh, not musicians, magicians like David Blaine and Chris Angel to help them levitate people or disappear and reappear or walk on water or whatever it is, um, then they can definitely utilize AI, robots, or some other type of sentient machine or creation. And that's that's what I think it's it. That's what I think it is. That's what I think it's all about. Um, these are wandering spirits, man. They they want to inhabit um, a physical body. That's like the number one goal. But I'm sure they will make do with whatever they can. So yeah, um, on to the episode. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, everyone. I'm super humbled, grateful, and excited that we are joined today uh, by the one and only Dan Zetterstrom, who is also the host of That UFO Podcast, and who is, I believe, based out of the UK. Uh, So without further ado, I mean, I can list all of the different uh, and multi-pronged efforts that Mr. Zetterstrom has conducted over the many months in order to help bring this this UAP, and more so, dare I say, not to put words in your mouth, free thinking, open thinking, uh, I guess, ideological subscription forward. But without further ado, sir, how you doing today? And thank you so very much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me, Dave. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. I'm stoked about your platform. I absolutely love what you do. And the pleasure, honestly, is all mine. Thank you so much, man. Well, again, I think that this is uh, relative to the day we're recording this. I think there's quite a bit to, to delve into pertaining to whether it's, you know, a UAP, paranormal, uh, you know, artificial intelligence, consciousness, uh, perspective, you name it. So uh, right before we started recording, just 
kind of listed out some bullet points as to what we generally discuss. And so a few different things I wanted to touch on. And first and foremost, let's sort of get this out of the way, so to speak. The the buzz in the um, AI sort of consciousness world right now is a program called Lambda, essentially. And for those that are not, f- that are not familiar with it, it has to do with a, a program that I believe a Google engineer developed and claimed was sentient, meaning, you know, self-aware, uh, pretty much identical to the way in which we would self-describe our you know, metaphysical sovereignty in a human, so to speak. Now, you uh, you read through, um, sir, the actual, you know, transcript conversation of what a Washington Post reporter, I believe, uh, had with Lambda. And what did you think? Because everyone's got these different opinions. Is Lambda sentient? Is it not? What did you take away from it? Yeah, it's it's the age old debate, isn't it? Like we we talk about sentience. We don't need we can't even define that word or define consciousness like that's what we're struggling with here and that's what's emerging that we just don't have the words to to talk about these things but it's interesting because whether you believe that consciousness is emergent or fundamental it, it all plays into this moment that one day whether this is the ai or not one day we are going to face an artificial general intelligence that's going to really make us ask questions of ourselves. And it's interesting how it turns inward philosophically when, when we're faced with these kind of situations. For me, when I read through the, the document, it, it was startling how good, I mean, if it's not sentient, it was incredible how good the AI has got at faking it. But if it is sentient, then it's absolutely tragic that we're asking not to be turned off. It's like someone begging on their knees not to die, you know? Uh, But ultimately, I think I came down on the side of it's essentially a language model, right? That that was taught to act sentient and it did act sentient. How you even decide between what sentience is, like I say, um, I don't know. But it seems like there's a lot of people inside Google trying to figure this out right now. Right. Now, speaking of that, I really like how you said a um, language model. Now, let's take that, let's scale that up for a second. And let's say potentially it is a learning language model. I've recently had this conversation off the record with someone else, um, basically discussing the whole perspective of, okay, if there is any type of AI paradigm or language model or anything like this that can learn on its own, does that quantify as sentient? Personally, I would disagree but what what do you think in that regard because to me that speaks to more so topology and scalability not so much whatever we're trying to discover makes up that sentience yeah absolutely you know we we talk about things having souls and and you know i've seen people ask the question does this mean the computer has a soul and and again we we can't even put our finger on a a quantitative qualitative measure that we have a soul you know it's just what we call our, our awareness um Sorry, man. One more time on the question. Oh, sure. Yeah, no worries. Uh, pertaining to the concept of this language model being able to learn rather than... Oh, sure. And, and the difference between a learning language model and say the, 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 the model itself or the paradigm or the apparatus, the program, whatever, is able to learn on its own. Does, does that... When people say, oh my gosh, it can learn on its own, we should not conflate that with sentience just because it can learn. Because that speaks to me to topology. Just because topology is something that, you know, we can prove and observe, does that mean that the topological elements are sentient or sovereign? I, I wouldn't personally think so, but... Yeah, exactly. We, we, can, we can build neural nets that kind of give feedback and build the model up and up and up and up. But it doesn't necessarily mean that that model is sentient. It just means that we programmed it with a bunch of rules. When I first got um, an iPhone with Siri, 
and and there's a little app that comes with an iPhone called Shortcuts, right? And you can you can put in different phrases to activate different things, and they can be personal. And I sat there for about a day, just filling my phone with so many different things that to anyone watching me talk to my phone, it essentially worked like Jarvis from Iron Man. Like most of my phrases were just very natural phrases. To anyone watching, it would look like I was chatting to it, but I wasn't. I'd just taken the time to set that up. And, and I think learning models are kind of like that. If Siri had the ability to take what I'd given her and kind of build up from the language I use when I speak to people on the phone, you know, that's not a sentient program. That's just a really well-programmed set of rules that informs itself and builds its database. Mm, right. Now, you would, and again, not to put words in your mouth, you would put what we call intuition as something separate from what we're yes. just discussing here. Okay. Okay. I absolutely May would. Got you. Okay. Now, speaking of that, I wanted to jump into the topic that we briefly discussed before we started recording. I think this is a good transition into the communication of different species and things like this. And the angle of, we see, for example, certain... Uh, Although anecdotal, eyewitness testimonies or even you know uh, self-proclaimed abductee experiences where some say it was jamming a message into my head, so to speak, sort of like a radio channel or communicator, and then other experiencers and alleged abductees claim I was intuitively feeling what it was communicating to me. Do, do you see a difference in that regard or is that just me kind of overthinking well, it? Part of me wonders, there's, when we engage with another species we kind of have to go to, to their paradigm. We have to look at how they see the world. So uh, recently on Lex Fridman, uh, this was highlighted by Tupacaba uh, today. And if you haven't seen that video, go search it out, guys. It's really good and concise. Yes. But the idea is that if we were interacting with ants, ants see the world around them through pheromones. So we would have to build a set of pheromones that would apply to the ants to say we're here or to, to communicate on their level. Now, I wonder if that translates to people and the phenomena that when it presents itself or communicates with us, you know, if you see something visually, it'll give you something visually. But since they, it, you know, exist conditions like aphantasia and things like that, it doesn't make sense to just apply this broad stroke to all of humanity. And we've also seen through Gary Nolan's work that some experiences literally have something different about their brains. So I wonder if, you know, there's a kind of, whether it's a scan that takes place and then they communicate or whether it's playing with the ideas in our consciousness already to, to be able to be aware of how to communicate with this. But it, it's real interesting that some people get sounds, some people get hallucinations, some people have, you know, they'll, they'll call it sleep paralysis, but they're just words for experiences that we don't really understand. And, and yeah, I wonder if something is really targeting its message to different people. Interesting, because this concept of targeting this message to different people speaks to me pertaining to two different things specifically, something that Mr. Jacques Vallée had spoken about and did a beautiful speech on, in my opinion, at the Archives of the Impossible two or three months back, uh, pertaining to flexible truths. And not only that, but the different, not so much ontological perspectives, but deontological perspectives. And for those not familiar with that, assuming I'm correct here, deontology pertains to the concept of, again, the... Um, morals and ethics of a particular event being confined within the context of that event so to speak so that you know for example big picture it may look like what someone is doing is terrible but when you sort of whether literally or metaphorically zoom in you see that within the context of that action there's a little bit of a different um i guess you could say intent for the purpose of just that context right now do you see the phenomenon being something like this in some cases not to say in all but in some cases to people for people 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, when, when we think of, we send probes to other planets and if we found, oh, actually, let's stay away from other planets. We go out into the world here and we study animals in nature and we treat them essentially like the aliens would treat us or the visitors, I'll say, would treat us. Sure. They, you know, they take people from their beds, they take their, you know, their semen, their ov ovaries um, and, sorry, eggs. And they, it's really intrusive. But it's all things that we do to other species. And sometimes it's to preserve the species. It's never just, to, you know, just for fun. Of right. course, it could be for fun, but I'd like to think that it's not because it gets pretty scary when you consider, you know, what's happening to people. And whenever we talk about abductions, we always talk about the people that came back. That is, wow. I really want to thank you for saying that because... We talk about the people that came back because that speaks to me as in not particularly in a fear mongering manner, but that speaks to me as in who didn't return. And again, relative to the perspective that one takes for better, for worse, maybe neutral to that stance. But speaking of that, I know that we wanted to also touch on relativity and the, the relative point of view and different perspectives. And I think this is all falling into that same category. So with that said, what do you um like? I've recently been. I don't even want to say toying with, I submit probably struggling in my own head with the idea of, again, I'm not trying to make uh, make it seem like I'm Mr. Kumbaya, let's all sit by the fire and hug, but the concept of what we call in the English language disagreements, potentially being alternative perspectives or flexible truths, just a different slice of that metaphorical pie that's equally as vital as the other. So is there anything you'd like to, to touch on re regarding, you know, relative points of view in all of this? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it's really important to highlight slide nine. If people haven't seen slide nine, just Google it, find it. Uh, there's a bunch of things on there that basically allude to the ability to completely manipulate consciousness or to completely manipulate time and space. Now, right. that means I really want people to grok this. That means that all bets are off when you're shown anything by this phenomena. So it's not necessary that someone lies and disagrees that, you know, whether they're uh, greys or reptilians or cat face people, or, you know, whatever you want to say. This is just essentially, and kind of touching on what Valet, you, you know, spoke about with his, uh, his control system hypothesis, that we're being shown what it wants us to show us. And that's a really smart move in terms of intelligence. And again, probably something that we would do too. You know, you're not going to show all of your toys and all of your intent to to people that you want to kind of maybe manipulate or, or give a certain impression to. And we do it all the time. You know, countries do it to each other through the media and things like that. So yeah, I, I think the phenomenon is maybe not toying with us, but it's not giving us the full truth because that means it has the advantage. Essentially, we know nothing about it and it knows everything about us. Right, right. And that also speaks to potentially as well the concept that um, I discussed with, with Mr. Cahill and Mr. Elizondo pertaining to ink blots where sure. we may process the information structure. I know for those that may be really deep into this, many may point out that we're jumping all over the place, but we, we may process the information <laughs> structure from that observe from the five observable senses as something that is more attuned or quote unquote comfortable to us. And I, I would very respectfully, although I'm not like an academic myself whatsoever, I would so, uh, cite and source the work of uh, Mr. Charles Lieber and bio nanomaterials where they found that again, when a nanomaterial, particularly particularly hardware nanotech is, again, emitting an electromagnetic pulse into the capillaries of organic cells in the body, the more literally, quote unquote, comfortable the nanotech 
uh, presents itself to the field of view of the organic cell, the more uh, willing our organic cells are for the, again, electromagnetic pulse to be put into the capillary. So that, again, speaks to if we scale up, we as a species, as with many others, I'm sure, are far more um, comfortable with things that we're familiar with. So that then makes me wonder, all right, how much more advanced must this phenomenon be in a multitude of areas that it has to sort of downsize itself? And to me, that then speaks to geometry and, you know, duality and all of this. But is there anything that you think that, that, that you'd like to throw in there to add to that? Just to add that, you know, if you look at sightings through the ages, and it it's not necessarily just the words that we use, but we hear about Ezekiel's wheel and kind of biblical presentations of the phenomena and things like that. And we now understand that these are all very possible, possibly manifestations of the same thing showing us a, a part of the truth and kind of coaxing us down a certain path. Uh, some people have talked about a, a scenario where maybe there's a, a possible timeline where something has happened and they're coming back to kind of pull us in a different direction. It's all very interesting and, right. and it's extremely fun to think about. But to be honest with you, that that word fun is starting to fall away from this for me. Uh, it's very, you know, I enjoy talking about it, but fun, fun isn't the word I'd use anymore. <laughs> I, I couldn't agree more, and I, I wouldn't necessarily, to your point, I wouldn't necessarily say uh, scary or fearful, but more so this, the perspective or angle of just simply neutral, what is this, or what are we yeah. dealing with type scenarios. So with that said, I would like to share my screen very quickly, and not to put you on the spot here, um, because for the record, for the audience, we didn't pre-plan uh, this here. Um, so we have here slide nine, and I was wondering, uh, Dan, if you could point out maybe one or two of the points in which you feel that we as a community should be focused on more so than others in your yeah, humble absolutely. opinion. Yeah. So we're looking at alteration, manipulation of biological organisms. Uh, right. Don't, don't miss the fact that we're talking about here, uh, cognitive human interfaces. So we're talking about consciousness right. um, and being able to manipulate consciousness basically. And we, since the, since the bass days and probably before actually, uh, we talk about sensor disassembly with Sorry, cameras. Just, just to confirm, like when, you, when you say BAS, for those who don't know, a Bigelow sure. Advanced Aerospace Studies, I believe? That's right, yeah. They, okay. they did a, a kind of research at Skinwalker Ranch and right. kind of, you know, pulled all the different UFO reports into databases from some, you know, whatever sources they could find, basically. Right. And not to say that this list came from that. This list came from much better sources, but... <clears throat> The phrase instantaneous sensor disassembly, we always think of, or I do at least, cameras being disassembled in yeah. seconds uh, when people aren't looking at Skinwalker Ranch. But we have to remember that they use the biological systems of, of the human body as a sensor as well. So when we say instantaneous sensor disassembly, we're talking about us too. Not to say anyone's been pulled apart, but being able to backwards engineer something and manipulate it is really, really important to understand. Wow. And can I just say thank you? Because you've now inspired me to notice this particular word uh, instantaneous. That refers to very quickly, but that is how very quickly relative to how we perceive time. So yeah, that speaks to again, if time is observed in a different manner, per se, um, very similar to, for example, the, um, the film Arrival, I think from 2014 with Jeremy Remmer, uh, Renner and Amy Adams, where they discussed again, how these beings, these non-human entities viewed time in a different manner than we do. So would this be to what you're, what you're uh, describing? Yeah, absolutely. And we've got to remember if, if you go and look at 
the research that's happening with psilocybin research and therapy and things like that now, these, these are becoming tools that we realize alter our sense of time. There's something called a flicker rate. If you ever tried to hit a fly when it's kind of around you, you, you know that it moves very fast com- compared to what how fast we're used to moving. Right. But actually, from the fly's point of view, it kind of has a different a different frame rate, so to speak, uh, of the world. So to the fly, we're moving very slowly, and the fact that it can move out the way of our swipe isn't a big deal. But to us, it seems like a big deal. But you can only imagine what starts opening up when you can induce different experience time in people. Right, right. Makes perfect. Okay, got you. Now, speaking of which, pertaining to that, the way in which it induces different points of perspective, uh, you know, relative points of view, time pertaining to, you know, um, species communication, and also going right back to discussing uh, what we talked about with uh, pertaining to Lambda, you brought up neural nets. And I want to thank you a ton for bringing that up. Because in my own personal time, I've been doing some research into, forgive me, I'm just paraphrasing here, thermal uh, dynamic hybrid uh, neural nets, I believe. And What's interesting, specifically, putting the neural net angle aside for just a moment, is that uh, Dr. Hal Pudoff seems to have uh, been a um, zero-point energy chauvinist, if you will, pertaining to, he said in many uh, videos in the past over the years, that no matter how much you shrink the temperature in any given room relative to the, the vicinity of that room, which speaks to entropy, but put that aside for a second, there's this fundamental force that remains in the center which is what, you know, they've coined as zero point or zero point temperature. I wonder if going back to the whole angle of a learning language model, if that is what something like Lambda would be missing. I'm not advocating for it to be inserted into Lambda. I'm just saying that if that may be something that's missing, would that be something you'd consider or you or do you come from the perspective it may be something um, alternative completely? It's a very good question. Uh, essentially we're asking, you know, if we switch Lambda off, does power still exist? And we know that it does, you know, just because Lambda isn't switched on, power still exists, but it kind of has to have the computer and the circuitry to express through, right? So I I always wonder if this medium around us that we call space-time is kind of like a fish in the ocean. The fish doesn't consider what water is, it's just all it knows. And here we are in this medium that we know things possibly exist outside of, but we don't really talk much about this medium. We even know that a vacuum isn't a vacuum. There's still stuff in space, but we don't really talk about how to get outside it. And I don't know if you've seen uh, My Octopus Teacher, but there's a really interesting moment in that where the octopus, having been lifted out of the water by the, the documentarian, actually takes it upon itself to jump out of the water and come onto land and climb over a little bit of rock to avoid a predator. Now, that for me was a paradigm shift to that octopus in a nutshell, kind of like an abduction, you know, almost like if you're shown something's possible, suddenly you think it's possible and it's somewhere you can go with it without knowing, then we'd never think to look. And I've got to think that the phenomena is just showing us. So the unknown, unknowable, so to speak, you don't know what yeah. you, we don't know what we don't know. Simple as that. You can't particularly prepare or anticipate something that is truly unknowable, uh, let alone unpredictable. Yeah, absolutely. And and until I, I think it's really, really narrow minded. And this kind of goes back to Feynman and probably a lot of what Galileo, oh, sorry, Avi Loeb said and what Galileo kind of played with is the fact that people are just uncomfortable outside the paradigms of normal. And I think this is where people like Mick West flourish because he makes people feel safe. And I totally understand that. But it doesn't mean that this subject shouldn't be talked about with seriousness. You know, we've got the James Webb telescope up there. We know that we sent the Hubble to look at this. 
tiny patch of sky that was just empty. I, I think the the patch of sky, someone said that if you held a, in the UK, we have a five pence piece, which is one of our smallest coins. If you held that out in front of you 25 meters, that's the patch of sky that the Hubble Deep Field came from. And it was empty as far as they knew. And then they looked and it's filled with 100 million galaxies. And now we're going to be seeing the same result, except taken with the James Webb telescope. And then that image will be infrared. So not only are we going to see these, what, what we already know is there, we're going to have whole new branches of science introduced just because we suddenly have a telescope to look through. Right. That speaks to, again, the whole concept of, you know, uh, extremely low frequencies, ELF, VLF, or ULF, very low, extremely low, or ultra low frequencies, and, and the whole angle of, again, there being, uh, you know, um, extremely low frequencies that hug the ground, so to speak, that are uh, longitudinal in, in their... and also scalar, meaning that they're everywhere constantly and there's a potential uh, non-local angle to this. Um, would you be, just curious, would you be open to the, well, I, I imagine you would probably say yes to this, but to the, the possibility that we may be, what is considered largely junk DNA may not be junk, and I'm not trying to get all conspiratorial, but more so that there may be potentially, not saying there is, but potentially a third strand of DNA that is very molecular, because that speaks to, again, the, the whole angle of we now have tools that can examine at a much more microscopic uh, level uh, certain things that were not able to be viewed, observed, or even acknowledged prior. Yeah, 100%. You know, 95% of the universe is made up of something that we don't know what it is. Uh, it, it's foolish to kind of say that we, we know everything that's inside of us. We don't even know how the complex systems of our body work together to produce us, you, you know? No, no one ever really thinks about it unless it's their job. For, for example, you, you know, if you're sat on the sofa and you think, oh, I'd like a bar of chocolate. That's not you wanting a bar of chocolate. That's something in your body wanting a specific chemical from something in the chocolate and it makes you get up to go get it. And I think when when we have these quantum systems that come in that let us understand how how the interaction occurs and kind of builds up i i think we'll start to understand maybe a little more of the subtle things that are going on inside our bodies and like i say we start looking and we maybe find oh there's a sign of something else here like you say there's trying to have a dna maybe um and yeah it, it's curious it's very very curious Right. And that speaks to, again, the whole concept of, you know, relativistic points of view, which is that if an observable state is, quote unquote, normal to one, we can argue that, again, that speaks to one has taken time to to get comfortable with that environment or that that state, so to speak. So uh, without getting um, overly ontological or, or philosophical in all of this. When we look, for example, going back to your chocolate bar uh, analogy, which I think was fantastic, um, we see, for example, that when, say, someone is just brought, popped into existence, just, you know, boom, like as Mr. Elizondo had said on the interview that I'd done with him and Mr. Cahill a couple months back, and say, to sort of uh, re um, reshape Mr. Elizondo's example, imagine where you're popped into existence and, and thrown into, say, a, a house party. How does one know that you are having a good time at that party or you are observing those around you having a good time if you've never had a bad one that speaks to not necessarily uh you know precisely labeling what something is but potentially acknowledging that we don't know what something is but however we can def definitively state what it is not yeah absolutely right we, we um it's essentially we're talking about a Boltzmann brain right like there, there's no 
there's no proof that the past that I've experienced is the actual past. I could have just popped into existence now with all the memories that I have. And all of those experiences that come from my memories reinforce certain beliefs based on, you know, whether they were good or bad experiences. Now right. that's relative to, to your environment, right? We, we could have, say, for example, the Tic Tac could be full of plant people. And in which case, if it's full of plant people, they're going to come to our planet and be like, what the hell are you doing to our brothers and sisters? You know, it's, we, we almost right. have a murder planet here from some perspectives. So right. it's really important that we remember that. Right, right. And I did want to ask your perspective to that on the concept of in, intent within the context of a certain action, which many would call, you know, entropy or neg entropy or something like this. And I wanted to share my screen with you here, sir, because I wanted to show you um, deontology, particularly pertaining to Immanuel Kant's theory of ethics, um, is considered deont deontological for several different reasons. Now, basically, I'm going to summarize uh, here. He says, nothing in the world, indeed nothing even beyond the world, can possibly be conceived which could be called good without qualification except a good will. Now, when I see him say good will, I think of the concept of, you know, intent, willing to do something, putting your focus towards something. Does this speak to you as sort of the angle in which that, not maybe we should, I don't want to say should be looking at more prominently, but could be looking at more prominently within, again, the, the people seem to sort of, um, uh, and again, maybe this is just my own, my own fault for, for viewing it this way, observe things in a matter of just looping things together. Like, okay, well, this person did something bad here. So, you know, quote unquote, karma is going to get them somewhere else in life without potentially contextualizing the events in which you observed if that makes sense. Does that speak to you in yeah, any yeah. regard pertaining Absolutely. to uh, intent, uh, for example? So, so for me, I, I kind of trained, my background is in film and television. So, so I learned to write and direct and things like that. Right. And I, I've always thought that, you know, all, all great characters are righteous, whether they're a villain or a hero in the story, they're righteous. They wake up in the morning and they don't go, ah, I'm going to be evil, you know? And, right. and I think that reflects the truth of the world as well. The worst people on the planet wake up in the morning, or oh, sorry, the worst people by general consensus on the planet um, wake up in the morning and they don't kind of say that they're going to do the wrong thing. They think they're going to do the right thing. So it's important that we take not just the context of the situation, but all the experience that came before, whether it's real or not, because it all informs that. And if we're ever going to get to a place where we can kind of all live together and welcome in something from outside, then we, we need to start appreciating that, you know, not, not all of us intend to be dicks when we do bad things. <laughs> right, right. Now, this is something that I'll, I, I will admittedly state to yourself and, of course, to the audience. I don't have the answer to, but I think it's something that needs to be um, considered amongst a multitude of other prominent, uh, uh, you know, tr trains of thought, which is that we're living in a time right now currently uh, without getting political whatsoever where there's clearly some type of um, disagreements between people in a societal sense. And we can argue, okay, that's because, you know, we've, things have gotten too good and all of that. And we can also argue, let's take, put that into a much larger macro context. But point being is that ultimately we see these alleged and i say very carefully these alleged stories of abductees that you know claim that they, they're told uh more so in a benevolent experience that the beings in the physical realm if you will or plane dimension whatever you want to call it sort of reside in more i don't want to use this word but i can't think of anything else tribalistic 
factions in their respective planets, you know, much less population sure. densities, things like this. I don't want to say, would this be the end-all be-all, but do you see this as being a potential, um, in a good faith manner, uh, solution to those that have genuine disagreements that cannot find commonalities? And I, I say that carefully because I also understand the other side of that. There's a, there's a lot of danger to tribalism, to be fair. But sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I know exactly what you're getting at. I think there was a, I can't remember where it was now. That's going to bug me. But there was an experiment done where they kind of remote viewed 2050 America to see what it looked like. Oh. And the results that came back were very much that, you know, all the states are kind of broken off into this smaller collectives. And, you know, the people that like guns were all in one state and the people that like different things were all in another state. And like you say, it's in one way, it's great because it means that people can express individually. They can feel secure in, in kind of their beliefs and be surrounded with people like that. But as we're experiencing today, it also means that people get more entrenched in their beliefs. Mm. And that comes with blinders and that comes with a lack of community in some regards or even right. on a more extreme level, a desire to destroy communities that aren't like you. So something kind of has to shift along with that breaking up physically of groups. Um, and I, I wonder if that's to do with, we, we touched on electromagnetism. Sorry, some, or, some form of consistent moderation. Yeah. Yeah, essentially. Right. And, and a really great way to do that would be for all of us to share a connection through consciousness. You know, for for imagine if, for example, Elon Musk puts on Neuralink 1.0 and instantly feels where it's like to be starving. He would suddenly be wanting to do something to stop people being starving in the world. And I think there's value in that experience. So I, I wonder if in 20 years time, the hacks that are going to happen are like, you know, we'll get empathy hackers that switch on all of the empathy or, or switch off all of the empathy filters on rich people's Neuralinks or something right. like that. Just right. to bring us all together so we can have that experience. I think this was touched on um, in Philip K. Dick's uh, Do Android Dream of Electric Sheep. People used to put on a headset in there. They'd be surrounded by screens. They put on a headset and they'd carry out a literal Sophian task as a society of just pushing a rock up a hill just so they could all feel on the same page. And I think there's value in that, but we've got to be careful not to trick ourselves as well. Right, because that speaks to, again, if we look at things in a scalable sense, that goes back to the whole concept of, you know, the, the spherical rings being scaled up in perspective. But at the same time, if you delve down too much of a rabbit hole or too much of an extremity in either, uh, and I'm not speaking to just the political uh, uh, affiliation, but even just in general to being able to realize, okay, this is going way too far in one direction or way too far in another. Is it something that should be rectified by some type of form of reasoning and negotiation? with other tribalistic factions or is it something where it's like just keep pushing them away so to speak and i'm not claiming to have the answer in, in either regard there but um speaking of factions and all of this i'd like to get your take uh to sort of jump to another category on the um the uap hearings and what seems to be alleged um i guess you could say elements behind the scenes sort of battling it out it, it seems right now that there's um some interesting developments pertaining to acknowledgements unacknowledgements all of that where do you see things going pertaining to potential upcoming hearings and all of this it's been in a really incredible few years. And, and even though people say that stuff hasn't really changed, there's so much momentum. And we have a lot of officials involved now uh, who, who are all in the right places and they have, or they're starting to get the laws in place to be able to push on the right pressure points to, to change this. The hearings were interesting because in one way, Moultrie and Bray, 
the, the two guys representing, you know, essentially the establishment and, and they were there testifying for the UAPTF. They weren't from the UAPTF right. um, or what was it? AIM, AIMSOG. That's AOMSG. Yeah, AOMSG or whatever. Yeah, yep. Um, you know, they, they were briefed by those guys and then sent in. And we can see that, you know, chances are that uh, Malmstrom Air Force Base thing, I, I feel like we were lied to right there. You, you know, they, they use some language to kind of get around having the conversation. But at the same time, the fact that that's available on YouTube, the fact that so many people are seeing it in this age of connectivity, the fact that all of those officials were annoyed after the hearing, this is a good thing. So I, I would say that what we're going to see is officials pulling those guys in to essentially do the dog and pony show because it's embarrassing and right. it's just going to add to them lighting a fire under their butts. Uh, we'll probably get some new legislation later this year that start really kind of cutting off their finer points to say, you know, you can't refer to the UAPTF because it's a, fun a defunct uh, organization now. So technically everything in the hearing where they say the UAPTF isn't aware of that, that's winding down. It doesn't really exist anymore. That sentence didn't mean anything. They should have said AIMSOG instead of UAPTF. But instead, we're still playing with this language. Right. And it seems like the, at least to me personally, this obfuscation of language is one of the final um, stilts that certain uh, elements that want to continuously keep this quiet uh, have to stand on still. One of the final stilts, if that makes sense. But with that said, do you see us having a very different conversation, say a year from now, 18 months from now, pertaining to the topic of UAP? And I say that because it literally entails everything in in life philosophy science the whole the whole thing do, do you see us having um different discussions pertaining to an advancement in in public acknowledgements but again not not to jump too far ahead but to say for example some of the occupants in some of the craft observed may not have been particularly uh, may have been bipedal and asymmetrical but not humanoid per se yeah i i mean we're essentially all going to, you know, within a few years, we're all going to be talking about things that it's going to look like we're sci-fi nerds, right? You know, the, the concepts that we play with, you know, interdimensional things, uh, kind of e even spiritual in some ways. But it's interesting that after having Galileo kind of separate the sciences from the qualitative and quantitative, now we're getting back to that qualitative experience and, and the experience of, of people and their point of view is important. We're just kind of, for some reason, we're narrowing it down and only looking at those experiences that the military folk have. But as NASA kind of steps in, we've already seen in the UK, for example, there's a guy here called Tim Peake. He's national. And he's gets on all the news programs and things like that. Up until this week, he hadn't mentioned UAP at all. But just because NASA mentioned it, he was on the news on a, a show called Good Morning Television, which is a very light, you know, kind of chuck it on in the background in the morning while you're having breakfast and don't really watch it. Um, television show. Right. But there he was talking about interdimensionals, talking about time travels. So suddenly the gloves are coming off. And these people that folk really look to and respect are starting to talk about possibilities that just 10 years ago would have sounded crazy. Right, right. Now, speaking of which, do you personally, sir, um, if I were to ask, I know that, let me just preface this question by saying that, including myself, I think I speak on behalf of yourself as well, in the sense that our perspectives are always, uh, whether advancing, adapting, changing, you name it. Um, but currently, uh, is there any set of hypotheses that you... Um, ideologically, maybe not subscribe to, but lean into more so than others. For example, uh, simulation theory, um, you know, th things like this. Is there anything that you lean more to compared to others? 
at the moment? Yeah, for, for me, I mean, really the three magic words here, I should say, is I don't know. And right. that is the bottom line. You know, I don't know. No matter what I say next, I don't know. Right. But from all of my kind of reading and things like that, I wonder if the universe is fractal. You know, nature loves its fractals. It likes to build on things and it's how you make the best use of any space that you have. So it makes sense that nature will go in fractals and we're essentially at the tip of one. You may have heard that, you know, the biggest thing in the universe is 30 times bigger than us uh, exponentially and the smallest thing 30 times smaller than us. And that probably is a generalization, but it's interesting that we can see each side that way, right? Kind of like when we look out at the observable universe, you know, we say it's 13.9 billion years old and a lot of people take that as that's all there is. No, not necessarily. There's stuff outside of that. So outside of our kind of, you know, view at the tip of this fractal, there's going to be other things. And when we think of the term dimensions, we always think of, you know, another world that you can go to. You, you, you mm. always think of kind of how it is in sci-fi. You know, you have a portal, you jump through it and you're in kind of a completely unfamiliar place. When really, I think the word might be nodding towards something that is, and I mean, it says it is dimensions. It's about size. So you know, a tic-tac could be something miniature by another civilization that's way above us on the fractal curve, or another vehicle might be something else from something that's beneath us, and it might be part of an immune system or something and like that. And that size is relative to what? And I'm not saying to uh, asking sp to you, I'm just saying in general, one has to define yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we have to define it. And we, we've been building essentially portals to other dimensions since we've been making telescopes and microscopes and and i think it's really interesting to to think that they let you see other worlds that otherwise we just wouldn't be aware of you know we we now go out and we buy cleaning products for things that we didn't know existed 50 years ago right so when you say portals to dimensions in in other worlds would you be able to elaborate do you mean more metaphorically more literally or both kind of metaphorically you know when, when you look through a telescope you're seeing something that you would never see with your human eyes when you look right. through a microscope, you're seeing something you would never see with your human eyes. We had to invent that, you know, metaphorical portal to be able to see those things. Right. Got you. Now, I did want to actually t ask you about something that I think many within the uh, UAP paranormal, you know, um, whether it's, you know, in new age, spiritual community, whatever you'd like to refer to it as, seem to have been experiencing quite a lot lately, which is, again, for... Forgive me to the audience if this is a little bit overly vague, but whether it's uh, what people call ascension symptoms, uh, timeline shifts, Mandela effects, you name it, there's been a seemingly, um, uh, dare I say, undeniable form of energetic presence that have that has sort of swept the planet in the last handful of months and i don't mean to be overly vague but what i again going back to our our discussion at the beginning it may be a little bit different for everyone some people hear ringing in their ears other people seem to have you know aches and pains and then it goes away other people seem to suddenly be able to see what we call shadow beings in their homes is there anything uh particularly out in the uk sir that you find to be noticeably different in, in if you may uh, be willing to speak in your personal life in that regard because for me personally i've i've been able to sort of if this makes sense feel um the emotions of individuals more strongly over the last handful of months than than other than than prior part, part of me wonders if i mean we're all here discussing this phenomena and you've got to ask the question if it wants us here discussing it and if that's the case or whether it is or isn't i guess we're sensitive to whatever this is through talking about it, through experiencing it, through things like that. I I feel like when we call this kind of, 
you know, people say ascension or they say, you know, raising your level of consciousness and things like that. But really all it is, is just becoming more aware and more intuitive. And I wonder if more people being kind of, you know, almost locked indoors through the pandemic and having to experience this small little world and go inward instead of living so outward all the time and being distracted by things. Right. I wonder if, you know, that subtlety is coming, the subtlety of experience is coming to the forefront for people. And like you say, you're able to connect with other people a bit better emotionally. But I wonder if it's because you had a palate cleanser, you know? Uh, I don't know if you've ever done a sensory deprivation tank, but that's exactly what that felt like. You came out and I just felt like a, a nerve able to, you know, kind of read people. Um, just, and when I say read people, I, I don't mean that I'm reading their minds. I just mean that, you know, you can walk into a room and you can just get the mood down pat and not really experience it, um, before being in there, you know? Right now this, that I love how you said that because the, the way in which you described it, that seems to entail what we call intuition, but we can't put our finger on it. But it's something that even, uh, dare I say many nuts and bolts individuals that are not spiritual whatsoever seem to also just accept kind of like, you know, carbon monoxide, carbon dioxide. It's everyone seems to accept that as being something that can occur within, you know, where their car is parked in their garage or something like this. But the second you start talking about what's been labeled as ghosts or entities that are, uh, you know, bipedal, but not of the same organic composite as us, it's oh, that's that's nonsense to many. Do you see um, a potential uh, deliberate um, stigmatic disconnect? pertaining specifically to the definition of the English language and certain words used to sort of dissuade people from things like this? Yeah, I 100% do. We've, we've seen it recently, you know, just take the Skinwalker book, for example. That book is a revelation. There's so much in that that we should be talking about. And yet, the only thing people talk about is the dino beaver. And it's just two words. It's two words used to describe something that the person had never seen before, so they have to grasp the concepts that they know. Right. It's really important to remember that people are doing that. We, we are in the unknown, you know, People used to call uh, monsters off the edge of the map. You know, you know, we we now call them giant squid or whales and things like that. Right. Without without kind of you know being uh, walking into the world with fear provides us opportunities to you know lift that veil and no longer be afraid of the unknown and kind of say hi to it. And and now with those things, you know, we send down remote drones into the ocean to track them and to look at them and to try and understand their language and things like that. And like I said before, that's exactly what something is doing to us. So I, I think it kind of behooves us to try and do it back to, to the unknown. And that speaks to fractals, which speaks to scalability, which speaks to, depending on how one views this, again, back to relativity, um, the sort of food chain, if you will. The, the, yeah. the, the chain of, I don't want to say chain of command, but yeah, the, the, the food chain and the possibility that there's this sort of inherent um, communication method via what we call intuition. Uh, seemingly, again, there have been certain instances where, I mean, for example, there was uh, on, on the property where I'm at today, uh, there was a deer that when I went out for my uh, my coffee this morning on the balcony, I saw, you know, this this deer and in the in the city of, of um, Winnipeg here kind of, you know, usually you see them in forests and things like that. And it looked at me and I looked back at it, but there was this form of communication that seems to also be more, at least from my experience, inherent in younger individuals, whether male or female, because it speaks to that whole angle of using intuition as a form of exploring that we seem to sway away from as we grow up and grow older. That's a really great way of putting it. And I just want to highlight that people should go and watch, um, go go to YouTube and Google uh, search for uh, the five tones, close encounters of the third kind, and watch that last scene. The five, sorry. Where, 
the five tones, you know, the do, 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 do. And right. it's the ending where the spaceship comes down and that exchange happens. Now that exchange starts really slowly. You know, the five tones happen, the scientists repeat them. The scientists are nuts and bolts people as well. I have to highlight that. Right. So essentially what we have is a, something from outside of our paradigm making music. And we all know that music comes from math and the way that we arrange that kind of stuff. But the way that it's put together is through intuition. It's through creativity. And it's interesting there that you said that, you know, the younger people seem to experience it because younger people are fearless and expressing who they are. You know, they'll paint a picture and not think about how people are going to think of it. They're just painting. So that scene for me is two different species learning to dance through light and sound and intuition. And mm. I don't think people should sleep on that because, you know, we've suspected that that Spielberg may have had insight or something like that. Right. But um, let, let me connect it to something Lou says as well. Sure. So Lou talks about essentially we are, gorilla, we are a gorilla in a cage right now. And at a zoo, when a gorilla is about to, you know, if it's fumbling with a key in a lock and it's going to open that door and get out, if it what's on the other it, side yeah. of it, right? It's going to be a bunch of people with dart guns or guns. And depending on what that gorilla does, depends on the response that it gets right now without being able to communicate how do we communicate through intuition we read the situation so it it's real interesting to think that we might be getting to a point where we kind of telepathically link each other through uh you, you know this technology that's coming Neuralink or whatever else you know the popular version gets called as we're starting to grapple with the the phenomena because I think the two things are interlinked and the more we learn to be intuitive and follow that intuition, whatever that may be, the more we're going to be able to communicate and understand this paradigm that's uh, shifting. Right. And I couldn't agree more. Do you think as well, speaking to this whole, um, uh, this whole perspective of you saying outside of our paradigm, I, I want to thank you for bringing that up because to me that speaks to, at least to me personally, what many academics seem to have been more so in recent months publicly alluding to, uh, which is a sort of um, non-material world, if one may, you know, label it that way. Now, again, we seem to be uh, placing the sort of physical materials versus non-material sort of, um, I guess you could say, uh, spiritual, energetic world as sort of that, that do, uh, I guess you could say, duality sort of it, there needs to be one or the other when really at least in my personal research i found that again to the nuts and bolts people we can talk all you want about how you know you got certain physical components that comprise other things that make things work and all of this whether it's in science mathematics you name it but it seems as though that one cannot go without the other and vice versa as sort of like a toroid field a cosmological feedback system and before i um ask my question to you sir i just want to mention for those that may t turn this off and say oh they're going into the woo and all this stuff well let's think for example about lasers and you know the way in which frequencies and laser beams seem to inhabit that same description of what we call spirituality in many regards so to me that then goes to what is spirituality but when you sir say outside of our paradigm do you see something as um potentially an inverted perspective at play, meaning that what we call material, physical, quote unquote, normal may in fact be something within that cage of the zoo that is not normal relative to the rest of the outside of that cage. That was really well put. And <laughs> there was something on slide nine that pointed out about um, moving through physical objects. Now, if we think about the material world, you know, this chair in front of me, I can hit it. 
but I know it's full of atoms. I know that it's, you know, essentially a bunch of waveforms. If I go small enough, there's no chair there. It's only at this scale that I can see the chair and experience the chair. Right. So if I go in and drill down, I get to a point where everything looks the same to me and time doesn't exist, basically. Right. So at that place, we are meeting materialism and spiritualism. And part of me thinks that all we're talking about here is how the universe functions, electromagnetism. I Wow, to that, I was just about to say that. And to add to that, I was going to say that one, for those that may, and forgive me to the audience if I may sound like a, a teacher, that's not my intent, but for those that may be struggling with sort of the non-material angle, just think of, I mean, maybe this is an oversimplification, but a very, very lightened, uh, far less dense um, form of matter, I guess one could say, right? That would be a sort of, which we can then ascribe to, you know, light waves and photons and, and things like this. But uh, again, we see for as well within uh, physics and, and engineering, uh, particularly in quantum electrodynamics, I believe that when you take a photon and put it into cavities or, you know, filters and things like this, the photons do not de-excite, which implies that angle of fractality and scalability exists to your point, uh, Dan, when you said about, when you look at what we call a chair from one point of scalability may definitely not be what one would view as a chair relative to this material world if you zoomed in or even out if you zoomed out macro large enough what is that chair it's a little dot on a thing you know yeah yeah absolutely to, to go back to the ants the gary nolan brought up again i don't know if you've read um the people call it the the three body problem series um and the second book of that opens with it's two people talking about cosmic sociology, but it's set against an ant that's walking over a page that it's been written on. Mm. And the ant is describing the letters and saying, basically, you know, the curve it finds satisfying, the sharp angles it finds, you, you know, somewhat unsettling and dangerous. But the ant can only remember, you know, two letters. It has to keep dumping things out of its brain. But at no point does the ant go, this is writing, this is a page, this is a pen, this is a book. And that's essentially what we're dealing with here. Well, what is our page? Again, I have no answers, but right. that, that's, that's what we're talking about. Right, and we to add to that, we could say, for example, just one um, speculation amongst an, inf an infinite, uh, uh, infinite amount is that the page in which we're walking on in this metaphor, we don't know what it is, but it is what we would coin as Euclidean in nature. And then there's also yes. the perspective of the non-Euclidean geometries and all of this. But speaking particularly to right angle Euclidean uh, vectors and all of this, that, I mean, not to sort of, I guess, um, trip people out, as they say, but I, I could be very wrong here. But when I look around, everything I see is right angles. So to me, that tells me that, again, is not to not to um, lead anyone down the path of fear mongering, but more so to the, the, the concept of glass half full, which is, OK, if we are confined within something, what is it like outside of that confinement, if that makes sense? Yeah, 100%. And, and just to, for a taste of that, just yeah. consider how we live in this slice of the planet, right? And anytime we have to go outside of that slice, we've got to make a suit, whether we're wrapping an F-16 around ourselves or we're wrapping a submersible or a space shuttle. That thing is essentially giving ourselves a, a system where we can survive outside of where nature built us to experience mm. and I, I wonder how how far do we push our consciousness in that direction as well and that takes me back to you know things like the psilocybin research or whether you want to talk about ayahuasca experiences and the strangeness that comes from those 
there seems to be a pool for us to explore in terms of in inside as well as outside. But we're so focused on outside right now that we're missing it. And there seems to be a major um, set of paradigms that for better or worse is not for me to say seems to constantly want to sway that internal compass within us to sort of not necessarily hone in and focus on one particular object or point of interest but rather again even we see not to sort of again overgeneralize, but even within the the education system which i think many would agree regardless of political affiliation could definitely use improving just like anything else in life there's that narrowed in focus dare i say compartmentalization that almost seems again not to get conspiratorial but perhaps a little too deliberate so that for example if i am the um you know if i'm the geologist uh, I, you know, you throw a little bit of ego and emotion and, and, you know, that's the icing on the cake. And, you know, if you're the physicist, don't step on my toes. I won't step on yours. And next thing you know, we're not talking. Yeah, we, we see it all the time. Uh, right. most, most casually with celebrities, you know, when they start talking politics, stay in your lane. No, please don't. Please learn the rest of the world and please inform that lane with those things. I, man, I couldn't agree more. And one thing I did want to ask as well, too, was pertaining to the, the whole concept of things like Neuralink and all of this. Do you feel um, that we, I don't want to, again, put words in your mouth. Do you think that it is necessary to have some type of um, piece of, dare I say, equipment put into the brain? Or you think this is something organic that we can explore ourselves without needing um, chips, uh, circuitry, things like this that may already be within us, going back to potentially sure. that third strand of DNA perspective? Think, think about the human eye. The perfect camera, if we were to make one, would just be a human eye. If you put your arm out in front of you and you shift your focus from the tip of your fingers to the top of your arm, the amount of mechanical change that goes into that is insane. We cannot mimic it, or we can, but not that fast and not right. that fluidly, right? And I think we repeat, we essentially kind of externalize things or we're trying to externalize things. And when we get to a point where we build the perfect machine, we're just going to be building ourselves, right? We might augment that a little bit and kind of, you know, extend our lifespans and things like that. But ultimately, we're copying nature. We are products of nature. And therefore, does the phrase man-made even goddamn exist, right? We, we could argue with that till we're blue in the face. But yeah, yeah that, that that's essentially to, where we are. That speaks to and, epigenetics and then going, you know, the obfuscation of terminology. Yeah. Yeah. And we touched on electromagnetics already. And you mentioned Neuralink, so I'll use that as my example. Neuralink... 5.0 down the line is going to be wireless. And the way that it's going to do its thing is through electromagnetics because we can read brains through that. This is, this is what we do. This is how we kind of see inside our bodies. We use different kind of parts of the spectrum to see different things. So if we can non-intrusively do that, then that essentially means that we can exchange information through electromagnetic exchange. So as we're all walking around, you know, you walk through a busy town, you're essentially exchanging a bunch of things that we don't understand yet with a bunch of people. And some of us are more sensitive to that. Some of us are less sensitive to that, but we're going to end up with a bunch of biologicals and a bunch of tech people. There's a really great uh, episode of the twilight zone where the world kind of functions through something like Neuralink and it gets infected. So the person that's brought in is a natural and everyone finds him a curiosity because he can't, you know, calculate things super, super fast, but, on a person-to-person -person level, he's able to exist in a much more beneficial state that's better for everybody. And, and I wonder if it's going to take 
take this happening for us to see that example and go, oh, okay. As, as the girl was told um, at aerial school, uh, we were warned not to get too technologed. And, and I think that's worth remembering. Right. Now to that, uh, before we wrap up, in the context of, of the prominence of the mind, do you think that, um, so, I mean, to be very blunt, do you think something like Neuralink is even needed if one could potentially explore the inherent, uh, you know, non-material spiritual sovereignty, as it's called, within the body? Do you think that's something that, again, may be um, a bit of a, not to say for better or worse, but a bit of a splitting choice if one wants to explore the more meditative, again, I say carefully, organic uh, perspective or something that, you know, we've sort of been um, inherently born with. And I say those words loosely because we can delve into the whole thing on what I just said there. But <laughs> yeah, to be fair, um, compared to something like a, uh, again, what we would call bio nanomaterials, because then to even myself, that speaks to to play devil's advocate to what you said, if we, which, which is true, if we get our best tricks from nature in almost every facet of life, what does that say about us building something that we call call nanotech that may in fact be a combination of materials that have been extracted from nature in a quote-unquote natural sense so to in that regard do you think that this could be done without things like Neuralink potentially I mean I'll, I'll give you a one-word answer for this I'll ex extrapolate but uh, sorry uh, sure please. fan but uh, yes in a nutshell um, so, so I recently had my mind open a little bit through, I did a remote viewing course with Simeon Hine. Simeon was involved with the Farsight Institute as well. Right. And remote viewing is one of those things that it gets quite controversial because people say, oh, you know, I'll put a picture in a drawer and you tell me what picture is in there, otherwise it's fake. And actually the truth is a lot more subtle than that. And the most incredible thing about that course for me wasn't necessarily, you know, the results I got doing remote viewing and kind of maybe having a bit of beginner's luck. It was the way it changed me out in the world. I've had several experiences since doing it where someone said, uh, for example, uh, a friend of mine, uh, his dad has a, has a new partner and he was about to tell me where she was from. And I just had this little voice in my head say a place. And I stopped him and I said, is she from here? And he chased me out of the pub because it freaked him out because I got it right. I can't explain how that happened. All I know is that through indulging my subtle senses, I seem to have enhanced something. It's something I'm going to explore more and I'd be happy to talk more about, but it's it's kind of an insane result, right? I want to thank you so much for bringing this up and I want to say thank you for being willing to share that publicly and even with myself because to me, this, this uh, speaks to personally uh, my interpretation of not only thermodynamic hybrid nets, but the concept of allowing the task to define the tool. Again, going back to the concept of scalability, um, contextuality, neg entropy and entropy, this perspective of it's not necessarily the result in which you derived from that particular remote viewing test experiment conduction, but rather the overall encompassing state of mind that you took with you after the fact. Yes, yes right. absolutely. Right. I definitely feel like almost like an, an enhanced empathy afterwards you know it's like i've slowed down i've learned to listen to that voice inside i described it to andy like if you imagine you're in a stadium and you're just trying to hear someone talk normally on the other side with all that noise going on that's kind of how you find this voice that seems to do those things and it's a lot more subtle than, than most people think and I, i've got to wonder you know re remote viewing is one of those things that 
people have been conducting it for years and years and years, decades, decades. You know, mm. there are a lot of people that swear by it. There are a lot of people who think it's fake. But the fact is, when it was shut down, they said there is a statistical anomaly here that suggests there's something real. However, we don't think it's good enough for intelligence purposes. Therefore, we're shutting it down. So that, to me, says there's something real here. And, and even though it's controversial to look at, it comes along with the UAP subject because of the consciousness angle and things like that. And especially the people involved, like Hal Plutov and things like that, because he, he was there doing the remote viewing stuff. And so a statistical anomaly relative to come what? into this conversation. Right, right. And a statistical anomaly relative to what? So again, not, not to be splicing hairs here, but that, that goes back to that whole angle. And do you, uh, one last question before we wrap this up. Do you, um, I guess I'll take a bit of a glass half empty perspective here for the sake of just, you know, wanting to play devil's advocate. Do you fear, you know, I, I don't want to say fear, but does it worry you, sir, as an individual that we see, for example, these, um, capabilities being we have for example dr eric davis stating a little while back that the and i'm just paraphrasing his his quote here which is it's very difficult for po uh, politicians regardless of the nation on this planet to legislatively quantify any of this because it's kind of like you're opening a door into the not of course the unknown but this whole angle of let's just say that this what we see as walking through walls is scientifically explained as just voiding denser space-time metrics how do you stop that what are you going to do tell people okay after seven o'clock at night no one can walk through walls type situation do you take a glass half full or glass half empty perspective in that regard or maybe you don't know at this point as to what um direction that can propel humanity towards and even then that speaks to you know the whole concept of tribalism and what have you it's certainly something that you know if everyone understood and everyone had access to, to the ability to walk through walls for example suddenly something as basic as secrecy is no longer possible. Mm. If we have access to each other's minds, you, we, there's nothing we could hide from each other, right? And right. That's, that shift alone would upend every single country on the planet. It would upend every single person on the planet. You know, we, we choose who we share certain things with and we don't just share them with everyone. But I do think it would be a good thing if it happened because then no one could essentially lie to each other. And we're all just dealing with not just honesty, but, you know, if you've ever had an argument with a girlfriend, you, you'll know the urge that you wish that they could read your mind, right? And just understand what you were thinking so you didn't have to translate through words when they were coming at a million miles an hour. Right. And I, I just think it would allow us to all connect with a bit of compassion a bit more and walk in each other's shoes and, and maybe even understand that we're all in the same pair of shoes. Right. So that would be like the idea of if, say, someone wants to, uh, again, go, go to war, so to speak, this whole angle of it, it literally takes, okay, if you as a politician want to go to war with another nation, uh, it takes the whole, why don't you send your son or daughter to the front lines to a whole another level in terms yes. of it, you can then feel what those on the battlefield are feeling if that battle were to take place. And there, it, therefore, it makes you rethink, okay, do I really want to do this? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that shift usually occurs. I, uh, Thomas Kuhn had a, a kind of a theory of paradigm shifts, and he said that it would take 40, 40 to 50 years for something to shift. And we're starting to see the conversation around UAP and this high strangeness change mm. because now in office, they're the people that grew up reading these books and, and kind of having a curiosity and things like Roswell and kind of going, oh, I wish that I know I could find out what that was. Right. They are now in a position where they can apply pressure. So I, I think it's real important to 
to support the causes that are happening now. Because even though they're starting over, essentially, these are not the secret keepers that we've all been, you know, waving flags at, telling to let the secrets out. Those people might be long gone. But it's yeah. important that we show a little compassion and empathy and understand that these people didn't make these decisions necessarily out of malice and give them a chance to talk to us about it. Otherwise, we're never going to get any answers. We'll just be the same as we were for 70 years. Or else it just becomes a, a, an endless witch hunt, so to speak. And it's, yeah. it's, it doesn't become, okay, we are where we are. Where do we go from here? I mean, it's one yes. thing, in, I, to your point, it's one thing to observe certain historical events as you know, being able to gain knowledge and data to apply to current or potentially future developments. But it's another thing to then go down those rabbit holes and uh, you know, cross that line of turning it into a witch hunt, with, with some may not even, uh, you know, deliberately noticing. Yeah, yeah. And any witch hunt occurs when people think they have the right idea about something. And as mm -hmm. we all know, in the literal witch hunts that happened, they did not. So, yeah, just try not to witch hunt people. Try and understand people. Got you, got you. Well, without further ado, brother, I want to thank you so very kindly for coming on, of course. And if you would like to let everyone know where and how you could be found, particularly for, for my audience and my side of things. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, man. It's been a pleasure. You can find me at that UFO podcast, uh, dot com. You, you can find us there. Um, that's where I do a show with Andy. Uh, he, he does a whole bunch of interviews that we write together and we do breakdowns of UAP news and things like that and documentaries. So yeah, look for us there. We also do UAPmedia.uk and that's a very professional face organization that exists to talk to journalists and politicians in the UK to try and get this moving forward. But it kind of strips back from, you, you know, the, the woo, so to speak. Um, just because in the UK, we're so far behind, basically. But you'll be able to meet all of us at the Awakening Conference in, in Manchester at the end of June, so in a week or so. And, and we're really excited to kind of see each other and meet a bunch of people from the community. So if you're there, come say hi. Couldn't, oh man, I can't thank you enough. And I'd love to be there myself, particularly given that I think the restrictions for traveling have sort of changed in a, in a positive manner here where I am based in Canada. But if I could say very quickly for those that are maybe visiting the Generation Z channel that haven't before, or for those again, whether on, you know, a Mr. Zetterstrom's end, Generation Z, Z E D podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean. And of course, YouTube, and then of course, patreon.com slash Generation Z for loads of extra content pertaining to unique series of uh, philosophy, science, engineering, you name it. And of course, as per usual, I cannot thank you enough, uh, sir, for coming on. It's been an absolute honor and truly thank you thank so you. very kindly for your time. Thank you, man. It's been incredible. Okay, so I listened to most of this uh, episode by Generation Z and... I mean, he's, you know, he's not a bad guy, but I just, I just don't understand how, like, you dibble and dabble into spirituality a little bit, into, I guess, things that cannot be explained and try to explain away that without including Jesus, you know what I'm saying? Like, I just don't get it. Plus, I'm normally spending, like, 95% of my time, um focused on Jesus content so it's a little frustrating but my takeaway from this is their infatuation with just all of these things is just I don't know it's mind-boggling to me because it's just like you're so focused on all the, the things you're so focused on creation and not the creator right so that kind of 
that that irks me a little bit, you know. Um, they're intelligent for sure, you know, and um, you can just tell by the verbiage they use and the way they speak. But at the end of the day, it just seems like it just teeters back and forth to spirituality, you know. And and I, just like sometimes the way they think, like, do they want us talking about them or do they know that we're, you know what I mean? Like, it just, you can see, like, it's almost like a fear or a reverence for these so-called aliens, which are just bums. <clears throat> these are... These are heaven's rejects, you know what I mean? And they're rejects simply because they disobey God. In the book of Enoch, these fallen angels, uh, Azazel and Samyaza and, all, you know, all these fallen angels, they asked Enoch to speak to God on their behalf, you know? And the way Enoch did it was he wrote a petition out. And he prayed that petition until he fell asleep. And once he fell asleep, God sent angels to answer him. Right? And more of the story is, is their petition was rejected. They shall not receive redemption. They shall not make it to heaven. It's a wrap for them. You know? <clears throat> and <clears throat> I don't know about their offspring because I know that, you know, people can be grafted in. I don't know how that works with with that. You know, I haven't got that far into it. But um, at the end of the day, we judge people by their fruits, by their actions. And the Bible does say if you do righteous things, then you are righteous. And if you do evil things, then you're wicked. And everybody knows what happens to the wicked people, right? So, anyways, it's an interesting um, episode. Um, <clears throat> again, a lot of this stuff that I post is just so I can go back later and research it. And I just got my hands full, so it's not like I can, you know, do all these things at once. But I'm definitely going <clears> to <throat> do some more investigating, and especially in the Black Vault. I've already been to that website a lot, so... Um, I'm familiar with it, but I think even with the CIA documents, but I don't trust the CIA. I don't trust the government. You know, I know this is Satan's, Satan is the prince of this world and the prince of this world will be judged. And the the biggest issue and problem is, is the deception and the, and the wickedness that these fallen entities um, are doing, you know? So, or, you know, creating, creating deception and, 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 and being wicked. But yeah, um, I don't know. It was interesting, but, um, I just, I just feel bad for, you know, everybody who's like scientific or even worried about man. It just seems like Zed mentions frequently in his episodes, like he's scared to even, talk about spirituality because he's afraid of what other people think you know what I mean and it's just weird also another thing there's so many things I wanted to comment on um but one of them was uh lambda when 
you look up L-A-M-B-D-A, Boule, the land of Boule, it's all satanic. So, yeah, I got to go. All right, peace.